Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, hope you're having a good week so far. Um, hope your week hasn't been like this individual I came across in a news story. Last Thursday night, he was cleaning up. It was 9 p.m. Uh, I was kind of kind of wrapping up things for the evening. He was an instructor in a studio in Charlotte, North Carolina. And while cleaning up around 9 p.m., this lady bursts through the doors and runs straight by him. And um, the guy's a little kind of taken aback. There's kids still in the studio. And a few minutes later, this large man comes walking through the door. And because the studio does classes, the, uh, Randall uh, walks up to him and says, can I help you? Are you interested in some classes? And the guy says, get out my way. I'm here for the lady. And Randall um, said, well, sir, that's, I, this is, I can't let you do that. You're going to have to leave. There are children in the room, the woman's screaming, he's trying to get me, I don't know him. And so um, the man begins to further try to push into the studio, and Randall um, begins to, to subdue him and to help ex- kind of escort him politely outside. Now what you need to know about Randall is Randall's the head instructor at this dojo karate studio, and... Um, and the entire time, he, Randall's saying, sir, you don't want to do this, sir, you need to step outside. He gets him outside, and um, the man decides to attack Randall to get back in. Uh, by the time the cops show up, they, they are able to arrest the man, but he doesn't leave in the police car. He leaves in the ambulance, um, because the final line of the report said that the suspect was injured. Because that's what happens when you step into a karate studio and demand the head instructor get out of your way in the midst of pursuing someone in a crime, right? And I imagine that Randall that night did not uh, go to work uh, and in his head think, man, my work environment is going to get uh, pretty contentious tonight. In fact, it's going to be borderline toxic and criminal. Uh, But that's what he stepped into. Now, I imagine if when you think about your work environment, there may be one or two people that you would also like for them to leave your workspace in an ambulance too, Um, because the reality is, is that relationships, as good as they are, there are also some relationships that are not that good, that relationships, especially in our workplace and spaces, they tend to be the thing that compels us to stay even when we're not excited about our work or they're the reason that propels us to leave, even if we are. That in the studies that have been done about workplaces, here and there and pretty much everywhere, what you find is that the relationships in the workspace matter almost as much as the work you're doing in that space. A good day can be ruined because of a conflict you had with a coworker. And in this series, Made for Monday, the goal for this series is just to very practically unpack what does it look like If we were people who were created for work, if work was a gift from God Almighty to us, whether we work at home, whether we are in the process of trying to find new work, or whether we've been working in the same place for decades, what does it look like to move towards, in 2019, a workspace that's better, with you better in that workspace? And last week, if you were here, um, you heard me uh, very succinctly and elegantly state that if you want the crops, you have to take the crap. That is a proverbial statement from Solomon to his children, right? That what comes in a broken world in workspace means that sometimes you have to take the bad in order to get the good. 
And what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is talk about how to navigate the bad and probably the worst in a workspace is toxic work environments and relationships. And so today I want to look at some words that Jesus delivers in one of his most famous sermons and probably arguably the most famous sermon in human history. And during the course of this sermon, he gives to us um, what I'm going to kind of repackage for you as two questions to ask yourself when you find yourself in the midst of a toxic work environment. The, the beauty about these two questions is that they don't just work in work environments, they work in any environment. And so these are questions that can be exported to every realm of life. These questions are found in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're new to faith or still trying to navigate your way through the Bible, which is a very large collection of books, you... Um, the, a very helpful way of understanding the Bible, which is the Christian scriptures, is that there's a two-volume kind of approach. There's the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. The New Testament primarily focuses on Jesus and the people of God that he forms called the church. And the first four books of the second volume of the Bible, the New Testament, is biographies about the life of Jesus. The first book, the first biographer in this series of four is a guy named Matthew. Matthew is uh, one of the original 12 followers of Jesus. He's very intimately aware of Jesus. He's there day in and day out. And so Matthew is also a very detail-oriented person who happens to be Jewish, who writes his book and editorially arranges his book for the first century Jewish audience. And that it's a helpful thing. One of the things that I teach in the 112, in fact, is that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. There was an original audience for Matthew's letter and account of Jesus's life. And understanding that helps you to kind of get a picture of why certain stories are, sh are shared and certain stories are not shared. Because John or Luke or Mark, the other writers of biographies around Jesus, they include things and don't include things Matthew has. Matthew's audience is what's guiding his writing. And so Matthew is very intentionally trying to lay out an argument that for most of us, it's not even one of those things that you would even be aware of, but for his original audience, they would have picked up that Matthew's trying to say to the Jewish audience that here's someone better than Moses. He uses certain words that kind of fly under the radars for most of us. But one of the ways that it kind of jumps up is how the Sermon on the Mount is placed in the book of Matthew. Um, after we hear about Jesus' birth and his ministry starting, very quickly, the Sermon on the Mount is introduced. Matthew 5 through 7 is the collection of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus laying out for the people who've gathered that day uh, the kind of a visual, uh, an, un, an unpacking of Old Testament teachings to describe to them what is this people of God, what is this thing called the church supposed to look like. And the passage that I want to zero in is just three verses. And the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly loaded. In fact, um, there are thousands and thousands of writings by scholars, by pastors, theologians throughout history on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not only the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, it's also one of the most famous sermons that have ever been studied. And so um, there's so much inside of this that we only have time to, to navigate these three verses. But out of these three verses or four verses, we'll find two questions. Jesus begins with this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? 
and pay no attention to the plank in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in Matthew 7, Jesus is getting close to the end of his Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to kind of pivot towards the end, and he's giving the audience a very visually compelling, and I would argue a very humorous account of what it looks like to be in a toxic relationship situation. He, it, one of the things that most of us don't ever think about is that Jesus was funny. And Jesus was. Jesus is a first century rabbi, and this visual image would have been a very humorous thing. It, it, the more you picture it in your head, the more you kind of realize Jesus is making the people laugh by making simultaneously a very profound point to them. He's, he's comparing these two individuals who are in the midst of conflict. One has a speck of sawdust in his eye. The other one, Jesus, um, it says the word plank. What that word means when Jesus says it is more like a structural beam for a house. So here are two individuals. One has a speck of sawdust, and the other one has this huge structural beam sticking out his eye. I mean, it's almost comic, right? Every time he turns, people have to duck. There's this huge log sticking out of his eye. And Jesus is kind of playing up this image of a, a speck of sawdust and a structural beam, and that the structural beam guy wants to speak to the sawdust guy to give him some advice. And Jesus is saying, look, this is ridiculous. Here's one with sawdust, and yet here's another with a structural beam. The one with the structural beam has a huge, glaring blind spot. It's called a beam. The other one has a little bit of a discomfort and inconvenience called a speck of sawdust. I love the, the verbiage. It's not even like a real sawdust. It's like a speck of a sawdust, as if somehow you could further break down sawdust into its components and specks. And it's like, no, it's a speck of a piece of a piece of a sawdust. And so you can imagine when Jesus gets to this point, his audience, they kind of chuckle because this is ridiculous. But the point Jesus is making is that while you're laughing, we all can fall guilty into doing this very thing. We all fall into traps of having our reality distorted because of something in the way. In 2015, in the northern, uh, kind of a northern suburban community of Sydney, the police responded to the report of the sounds of a man screaming, I'm going to kill you, you're dead, a woman screaming hysterically, the sounds of furniture being thrown. And, and so I'm going to read a little bit of the report because I want to make sure I get it. And so the, the police arrive at the scene, they bang on the door, and according to the report, a man opens the door who is out of breath and rather flushed. The, the officer says, where's your wife? I, I should probably tell you this. I really wanted to do this with an Australian accent. I even watched the video on how Australians speak and realized there's no way I could pull this off. Full disclosure, I'm weeping on the inside because I really wanted to do it. I go back. And the man replies, I don't have one. And the, the officer presses, says, well, where's your girlfriend? And he says, I don't have one. And he's like, look, mate. What have you done with her? The, your neighbors are calling. They hear her screams. They've heard you say, I'm going to kill you. So let us in. What have you done? 
And the man points his eyes to the ground and sheepishly responds, well, it was a spider, sir. I'm sorry, what? And it was a spider, a really big spider. Well, what about the woman screaming? Yes, sorry, that was me. (laughs) I really, really hate spiders. This entire call, after, obviously, because they're good cops, after they inspected the home, what they found was furniture thrown everywhere. This man, in the midst of seeing the spider, had grabbed an insect can, had begun to spray the spider. The spider, I guess, doesn't respond to the human macing that is occurring. And so he begins to then throw furniture at the spider in order to kill it. And what the police report um, in their report is that they find a house completely kind of thrown furniture everywhere. And sure enough, the crime scene is a dead spider on the floor. That is what he did. Now, before you judge this man, you should know that Australia has some of the most terrifying and deadliest spiders on planet Earth. Here's a picture of one of them right here. This spider is bigger than my hand, and it eats rodents and birds. I would scream and throw furniture too if in my house that thing went running across the floor. Full disclosure. That is terrifying. Now, when I close my eyes at night, this is what I see, okay? But the reality is, is that the the cops show up, and, and what they find, they have this picture in their mind. They're stepping into a domestic abuse situation, and when they arrive, what they discover is that reality is completely different than what they expected to find. And this is what Jesus is trying to, I think, point to as he's pushing these people, that the first question you have to ask and answer in the midst of a toxic work environment is, what am I dealing with? You have to take a step back, not what do you think you're dealing with, because what you think you're dealing with is an idiot. What you think you're dealing with is someone who doesn't know how to do their job. What you think you're dealing with is someone who's a jerk. But the take a step back, and before you quickly label the sawdust, you have to become aware of the structural beam possibly stuck inside of your eye too. It's not enough to think you have a perspective. What you have to do, according to Jesus, is gain reality. And when you take that step back and you begin to evaluate, how might I have contributed to this situation? My boss, yes, is a jerk towards me. But maybe he's always frustrated or she's always irritated because I consistently miss deadlines. Maybe that is fueling the underlying tension in the workspace. That unless we're willing to take a step back and first ask the question, is there a structural beam stuck in my eye? We should not step up to call out the sawdust in theirs. And unless you can answer the question, what am I really dealing with here? What is really going on? Unless you can answer that, you're not in a place to address it. And that so often what happens when we step into toxic work environments and frustrating situations and we've got our perspective, we've, we've told all our friends how big of an idiot they are and it just reinforces the idiot narrative in our head. Then we show up and we put them on the defensive. We show up and we say certain things and it's a completely different picture of reality than what they have. And Jesus says, look, before you address it, take a step back and answer the question, What 
are you really dealing with? What's reality? And if you're willing to take a step back and do that, it takes humility, genuinely, to take a step back and realize how you might be at fault. That's a game that I play very frequently. I've said that out loud before, that I typically play the game inside. Whenever there's a conflict, I ask the question, how might this be my fault? How might I have I contributed to this situation? Because it, I've, I've learned with me that if I ask the question, how is this my fault? Then it fosters the, the ability to see the structural being out of my eye. And a lot of times when I take that step back and I ask that question, what happens is I step into the conversation and instead of making an accusation, I'm making an apology. Because I've found sometimes when I step back that really what's really the problem in the situation is me. And then I come into the circumstances and I say, hey, I just need to apologize. I've been distant or I've been disconnected or I've been frustrated. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. I just want you to know, I, I recognize that I haven't been the best person to be around recently. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And I hope we can move forward in this relationship and continue to build on it. It's an important, important thing when you find yourself in conflict, whether it's happening at work or at home or with friends or in volunteer spaces. The ability to step back to say, what am I actually dealing with here is critical. But then Jesus does something that's pretty interesting. You could think that maybe this is it. This is all he needs to say. How am I at fault? What am I dealing with? Get the soul kind of Get that structural beam out my eye, and now I can step in and help them with the sawdust. But before Jesus releases his listeners to say, okay, go ahead and do it, he then throws in this strange saying. In, in fact, it's, it's a proverb. It doesn't seem to fit. When you study this passage, um, you'll see that scholars are split on the inclusion of this next statement because they're like, it doesn't make sense. And, and maybe it doesn't make sense when you sit in some lofty kind of tower and you're processing the language. But when you think about real life, it's actually brilliant what Jesus adds to the conversation. Jesus contributes a second question to the discussion around toxic work environments and, and conflict and relationships. He says in verse 6, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. And this is really important. You have to realize that this is a first century context. Dogs as pets is not a common phenomenon at this point. Dogs are typically avoided in first century by Jewish men and women. These dogs that he references here are wild dogs because the average person in the first century, Jewish man or woman, if they encountered a dog, it was most likely a wild one. It was not Fido sitting on your lap. It's not your pet. This is a wild animal. And then you have the pigs, the inclusion of pigs. And pigs um, were seen by Jewish men and women, boys and girls, as unclean. In fact, it was, an, it was actually ideal if you were a Jewish man or a woman to live your entire life and never even get close to a pig. They were seen as something in their religion they called unclean. In fact, there are still... People today in this world of various religions, in fact, who will not eat pork products because they're still seen as unclean animals. 
And so Jesus is invoking in their minds two emotionally compelling pictures of animals that most people avoid for his day. And he says, don't give dogs something sacred. Why? Because they may attack you. And then he makes this other visual analogy. He says, don't throw pearls to pigs. Why? Because they'll just run all over them. I've never seen a pig walking around with a pearl necklace. They just don't get it. They walk right over it. And he's saying to them that after you've answered the question, what am I dealing with? After you've taken a step back and you've noticed the structural beam in your eye and you've removed it, before you rush into the situation, you have to answer the second question. Who am I dealing with? This is what he's playing on. He's, he's giving a proverb that's making the point that the character of the person in the conflict determines the content that you give them. The character of the individual influences the content of the conversation, period. Right? It's a pig, you don't give them pearls. Why? Because they'll step on it every single time. If it's a dog, you don't throw something sacred because they may turn and attack you. He's saying, look, before you rush in to resolve this situation, you need to answer the question, who am I going to be answering to? And the character of that who will determine what you do. Now, all next month, the series February is called Relational Vampires. And the whole gear of our February series is we're going to talk about how do you deal with those people who suck the life out of you, those people who are very draining, right? Maybe you don't have them in your life. If you don't have anyone in your life, it could be that you're that person for someone else's life, all right? Just saying that on behalf of them, it's possible. But we want to deal in February with relational vampires. And so while we'll shift the bulk of kind of the application into next month's series, I do want to give you a few of the who's and, and how to identify a few of the who's that you might, may interact with in the midst of conflict. To make it even simpler, the few is, um, few is an acrostic. And it comes from ancient literature, the book of Proverbs, in fact, actually compartmentalizes and characterizes and groups individuals into these three categories. Um, Dr. Townsend in his book, Necessary Endings, which is a really phenomenal book as well, um, he breaks it into something similar of these three variety of individuals because the character determines the content and how you interact. The first, I'm, I'm not going to spell the word few in the way that you would want me to. I'm going to bounce around. The first individual is the wise. Now, wise doesn't mean smart. Wise doesn't mean intellectually superior to everyone else in the room. What characterizes someone who is wise is that when they hear feedback, when they're confronted with reality, they respond to it. That is the basic definition of someone who's wise. When confronted with reality, they respond to it. You give them feedback and they listen, even if they don't agree. You give them feedback and what you find is they take responsibility for their actions. They acknowledge where they have failed. They acknowledge where they dropped the ball. They acknowledge where they undercut you in a meeting. That's, that's someone who's wise. And when you engage someone who's wise in the midst of conflict, the relationship grows as a result of it. It doesn't weaken. It actually gets stronger. Some of us have trouble even imagining that conflict can actually be constructive for a relationship, but it actually can if the type of individual you're dealing with is someone who would be categorically wise. 
You'll notice that they have relational empathy. They'll hear you. Even if they don't agree, they will acknowledge the fact that what they did caused you to be frustrated or what they did caused you to be sad or hurt or angry. That that individual will respond acknowledging with empathy what they caused you to feel. That's wise. That's what it looks like to interact with someone who's wise. And typically, when you engage someone who's wise, their problem doesn't continue to develop into a pattern. Now, it would be great if the only people we ever had to deal with in conflict were wise. That would be marvelous. I'm guessing that that's probably not true for you. That's why there's two other who's that you would be helpful to kind of have a framework for. The second who, um, while with the wise you communicate, the second who is completely different. You don't approach them the way you approach with a wise. Someone who's wise, you can have a conversation. That's all it takes, typically. But this next category, it's not how it works out. They're called the fool. And, and that may invoke a lot of mental images in your mind of people you work with or live with. But the fool is characterized that when, when approached with reality, they reject it. Where the wise responds to the reality that you put forth, the fool rejects it downright. They reject it by resisting it outright and saying you don't have a clue what you're talking about. They may try to explain it away. They may have 15 different reasons why what you did and how you did and, and the assignment, all these different reasons it just didn't work out, all these different ways that it wasn't really their fault. They're really good at blame shifting. A fool has a lot of people that they can blame for the problems in their life. They may minimize it, which is a really frustrating thing, right? When they, why are you getting so, why are you blowing this out of proportion? It was just, it was one report. It was, it was one missed paperwork filing. It's just, they, they minimize it. And somehow you feel like you've made a bigger deal than it actually is. They may get defensive, throw up, and kind of just emotionally vomit on you or even attack you. And almost intuitively, you know when you're dealing with a fool because if you've dealt with them before, you feel it when you have to deal with them again. There are people, I guarantee, I don't have to know your story, but right now there is someone or someones who are listening that you are avoiding conversations in your workplace, you are avoiding conversations in your home life because you know, you've never voiced it this way, you've never labeled it this way, that the reason you don't want to have that conversation is because they are a fool. And it is also possible that there are someones present listening right now too there are people who don't want to talk to you because you're that fool in their life. That's why that first question is so helpful. To take a step back and say, what am I dealing with? Do I have a structural beam sticking out my eye? The fool never does that. The fool never, ever steps back to say, is it somehow possible that I'm a part of the problem? Now, here's the thing with the fool. They're usually ignorant of the chaos and the carnage that they leave behind. They, they aren't aware of it. They may be causing a lot of chaos and carnage all around them. But this is really important. They aren't intentionally trying to do it. Maybe it's someone who has kind of a serial bad habits or um, maybe some addictions. And they, they didn't set out in this journey saying, man, I want to destroy everyone around me. But the reality is, is that with every choice comes consequences. And a fool, because they reject reality, 
they oftentimes outsource the payment of their consequences to the loved ones around them or to the co-workers around them. There are people that you work with who, honestly, you carry the weight of what they don't do. You shoulder the burden of their poor choices. Why? Because when choices are made, consequences always follow those choices. And the reality is that someone will always pay for those consequences. And the fool, because they reject it, because they won't take responsibility, they just shift the payment onto others around them. And so you can't walk up to a fool and have a conversation unless your conversation starts like this. How can I give you feedback in a way that will cause you to actually listen and respond to what I'm saying? That's the conversation you have with a fool is how can I say this in a way that you will understand? Because I've said it 16 times before and I don't think I'm communicating it well to you. But most of the time, talk does not work with a fool. Consequences do. You have to make a choice, whether it's coworker or whether in your own home, to no longer agree to pay and suffer the consequences they have. Now, this is hard. This may be that, hey, you need to recognize that if you don't turn in your portion of the presentation this week, that when I get to that slide, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, one of, our, one of our team members didn't get the slide in in time. And so I'm going to have to skip that. They'll submit a separate report to you later. Now, what happens in that level when you elevate it to consequence is now the fool has to do something they've never had to do. They have to pay. And often, not always, but often, that payment that consequence or the limitations that you impose, the next time you talk to me that way, I need you to know that I'm going to turn around and I'm walking away from you because I'm a human being and no human being is allowed to be talked to that way. You're not my mother or my father. Do you understand me? The next time you say those demeaning words to me, I'm going to respectfully turn around and walk away. That those limits and those consequences will sometimes wake up a fool. Now, I've been really careful in how I've talked about the fool because this is essential to understand. There is a third category, and that third category may look like a fool, but the fool never intentionally sets out to harm you. They just don't want to take responsibility. The third category, the enemy, does. Now, that may sound harsh, but... If you've breathed and lived on planet Earth long enough, I guarantee you that you have enemies. Some of those enemies you probably earned, and some of those enemies you don't know how or why or what their problem is. And an enemy is not someone who unintentionally harms you. An enemy is someone who intentionally harms you. And this is important to realize, that there are individuals in your life there are not a large group of them. No, they probably do not meet. They are not in a club. They don't communicate via Slack about their processes of taking you down. But chances are you probably have one or two people in your co-workspace, if it's toxic, that perhaps could be an enemy. And the way you respond to an enemy is different than the way you respond to a wise or a fool. With the wise, you have a conversation. With a fool, you introduce consequences. To the enemy, you construct a protective barrier. 
Because you recognize that the enemy's intention and delight is causing you, you pain, frustration. They enjoy making you look like an idiot in front of your boss. And while these people are rare, they do exist. And it's helpful to know when you're dealing with those kind of individuals because you're able to avoid them. You don't try to have a conversation with your enemy. You don't try to introduce consequences with an enemy. You just construct a protective barrier. It may be relationally where you just say, look, we're not going to go there. I'm just, I'm going to do what I do and I'm not going to engage them any more than I have to. It may be that because of harassment in your workplace, it may be because of a bully in your workplace, this type of individual, that you have to, to go to HR or that you have to physically relocate your office space. Believe it or not, just relocating yourself to separate floors can be a huge difference maker in the midst of a, a, a kind of a toxic work environment with an enemy because out of sight can help to be a little bit of out of mind for you. And it's just one of those things you realize, I need to protect myself. I need to construct a barrier, not have a conversation or introduce consequences. Fortunately, most of us probably don't have to deal with these, these kind of individuals regularly. But I think it's really important what Jesus is trying to say is you, you can't just answer the question, what am I dealing with? You have to answer the question, who am I dealing with? Because who they are will, will determine how you respond. And that framework of someone who's wise, someone who's a fool, and someone who's an enemy, or to rearrange the letters to spell out the word few, gives you at least a very helpful, um, time-proven framework when interacting with people in the midst of conflict. But to take a step back even further, I think it's really helpful to understand why is Jesus giving this advice in the first place? Why is Jesus guiding his listeners to this type of vision and this type of instruction? Well, in October 1962, um, one of the historical moments that I've always been fascinated with as an adult is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, the Cuban Missile Crisis is one of those moments that doesn't, unfortunately, get as much historical attention as it should, because it is the one moment in human history, recent human history, where we were on the edge of global nuclear disaster. So the, what's playing out in October of 1962 is the USSR has, is storing nuclear weapons in Cuba. The Americans discover this and don't want to repeat the Bay of Pigs incident, um, which was a, a disaster. And so they convene and they say, how do we respond to these nuclear weapons literally sitting in our doorways? I mean, it's, it's a terrifying time to be living in America at that time, right? You've got nuclear weapon drills. You have people practicing what to happen if the siren goes off because a missile's been fired. I mean, this is a scary time in, in American history. And so they're trying to figure out how best to respond, and they settle on the idea of a naval blockade. We will send our warships to surround Cuba so that when the USSR ships in more nuclear weapons, we will be there to stop them. Now, what plays out in those days is that these warships are confronting one another. You have a Soviet ship that has nuclear weapons, and you have American ships blocking them. But what's terrifying is what's actually happening underneath the surface. Underneath the American warships are Soviet submarines. These so Soviet submarines were armed with nuclear weapons. 
And because it's 1962, not today, communication was a very difficult and slow thing in the midst of this time period. And so Moscow, the Kremlin, had authorized these Soviet submarines with the power to launch a nuclear weapon. Because if the war broke out, they didn't have time to try to get in touch with the Kremlin to find out what to do next. And so the Kremlin had authorized the submarines with the power to launch nuclear weapons without first getting permission. And the way they'd authorized it was if three officers, three selected officers on board all agreed it was the right thing to do, war was imminent, then they could hit the launch code and release the weapon. Now, why this is incredible is because during the Cuban Missile Crisis, two of the officers on board of one of the Soviet submarines underneath a naval warship was convinced that those naval warships were there to destroy them. And the only thing that stopped the launch button from being hit was there was a third officer on board, the other one who was authorized, who refused to go along with the two officers who had already activated their portion of the process. That one officer stopped what would have been nuclear war between the Soviets and the Americans. Because you can almost guess what happens. The moment that Soviet ship releases that nuclear weapon, we release our nuclear weapon. It was actually policy at the time. It was to escalate the war. And this idea of mutual assured destruction that literally no one's going to launch a nuclear weapon because it means we both obliterate each other. And this one man, in his hands, literally in his hands, was a third of the world's population that would have been obliterated in the course of just a week's time because of the nuclear war he could have started. And this man, who we don't know his name, quite possibly is one individual who saved humanity in the 19th, in the 1900s, in the 20th century. And I think what Jesus was trying to do when he was unpacking for them this these series of questions to engage toxic environments, the, the, these two questions to how we navigate conflict relationally, was Jesus had in mind that, that type of individual in the midst of a toxic world, in the midst of where war is happening all around us, this one level-headed individual stops the world from going further into chaos and further into dissolving. That one individual with his level-headed approach saved the world. And Jesus was speaking to these people, trying to cast a different picture for what his people, the church, would look like. They would be peacemakers. They wouldn't be missile launchers. They would be people who move us closer to resolution, not destroy reality. They would be individuals who could de-escalate, not escalate situations. And the reason he could call that from his people, the reason Jesus could paint this picture of being peacemakers is because Jesus understood that at the core of being one of his people in this new thing called the church was at the core of each one of their hearts was to be a heart already at peace with their maker. Because when you have inner peace on the inside, when you have peace with your maker, it's a whole lot easier to be importers of that peace with people who do not. It's a whole lot easier when you have peace on the inside to navigate the chaos and the insanity of the world not at peace on the outside. And this is why Jesus gives this very 
kind of counterintuitive advice to his people. It's because, look, what's going to mark you is the fact that you are already at peace. There's not a war on the inside anymore. And that was the fundamental promise of what Jesus was coming to do, that because of his life, death, and resurrection, the peace with the maker could happen because of what happened to him. And that for some of us, the idea of inner peace seems so foreign to you. It seems so distant. But the promise of peace on the inside that Jesus gave the first century audience is still held out for us in the 21st century too. That you can have peace internally, which gives you an ability to navigate the lack of peace externally. I don't have time to fully unpack that, but inside the app that Jason referenced earlier, the free app we've created for you, you'll see a little tab that says Exploring Faith. And I've recorded a video where I unpack the process, I unpack kind of a bigger picture um, in the course of about five minutes and describe to you how you can have peace on the inside and how you can navigate and understand what it was that Jesus was seeking to bring to you and I through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that if you choose to, or if maybe you're not, you watch the video and you still have questions, there's actually a little link that says, I have questions. And you ask the question. We'll respond to you. We'll sit down and talk it, talk it over with you. Or if you just say, hey, I want to learn more, then I have a couple of books that I've sent to some people in this room already, and I would love to send them to you as well to help you further navigate because I think inner peace is worth pursuing. And I think anything that being able to take a step back to evaluate where you are and to to be able to answer the question, what's reality? And then to be able to move forward in that process and say, well, who am I dealing with? And having the peace underneath it all. That, that's a life that's guaranteed to make 2019 different for you, no matter where you find yourself in. Let's pray.